Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 34 in the book of Hebrews titled, Heroes of the Faith Through Victory and Suffering, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, this is our final podcast on the Hall of Faith, not the final podcast in Hebrews, but the final podcast in chapter 11. And we get kind of a summary of a bunch of characters. We're going to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and then several unnamed people that the author puts before his audience. What's the unifying lesson that we're going to see in the examples of faith that we're going to look at today? Well, perhaps you could say that faith flourishes in any and every circumstance you ever face in life. Um, you know how Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. So in the list that we're, we're going to see, the summary list, you see both amazing triumphs that were done by faith and also terrible sufferings that were endured by faith. And so I think the author to Hebrews, keeping his audience in mind, knowing that they're persecuted professors of faith in Christ, they're going through uh, afflictions, they're going through imprisonment, perhaps even death. You can go through that by faith, and we have some precedents. So he's getting them to look at this hall of faith, the heroes of the faith, men and women, who stood courageously, even in the midst of extreme suffering, those of whom the world was not worthy. They went through terrible sufferings, but also others were, were lavishly successful. And so whatever the immediate circumstances uh, that the author to Hebrews was writing, keep in mind always the Holy Spirit had a, a larger purpose. And so over 20 centuries of church history, there's going to be both success and apparent failure. But all of these things can be done by faith. Yeah, that's a really good point. Also, just the fact that some of these characters don't get named. Yeah. You know, do you think that's encouraging maybe for some yeah. Hebrew Christians that they know they're not going to make it into a famous book? Yeah. But they still did did amazing things by faith, and God sees it and knows it. So a, a strong uh, crescendo here at the end of this beautiful chapter. Yeah. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read out loud verses 32 through 40. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So my first question I want to ask you Andy, is what impression does the author want to give us of the life of faith and the examples that he puts before us? That he could multiply examples forever. And to me, this is the exciting thing about the book I'm writing on heaven, is that time fails the author to Hebrews to go into details here. But in heaven, we're going to be able to get to look at every small detail of the heroes and heroines of faith and see what they did. And so faith really flourishes in any and every situation in life. 
I mean, really, uh, I think any Christian reading this chapter should be motivated to say, I want to add luster to the, the heritage of faith. I want my life to be uh, lived for the glory of God by faith. And the only way we're going to do anything that's commendable is by faith. And so I think the, the initial impression you get here as he gets into summary, he's in a summary mode here, it, when he says, time would fail me, I, I, don't, I don't have time now. Well, we have time constraints here on earth that we will not have in heaven. But he's giving a sense saying, look, there are so many witnesses I could call here. We're part of a, a beautiful, massive movement of faith, and we want to be part of that. In verse 32, he gives us six characters and he, that he names. And I want you to give just brief descriptions of their life. You know, time would fail us if we went into detail about, all, about these great men. But give us a gr- brief description of their life and ways that they showed their faith and how they lived their life. And so the, the list is Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Yeah, so you've got these that are specifically named. Um, the first four are all written about in the book of, of Judges. And then David and Samuel come up in the, in the area of First, Second Samuel, you know, in the kings. And so they're, they're early leaders of the nation of Israel after, you know, Joshua had conquered the promised land. So we're kind of following Moses, Joshua, and then the early leaders. So we're getting a rough chronology here. Interestingly, you know, you and I were just talking uh, before we started the podcast here of, the, of these six. And you got these two couplets and the, and the chronological order is reversed. Gideon, then Barak. Well, they come in the opposite order in, in Judges. And then Samson and Jephthah, same thing. And then David and Samuel, same thing. Samuel preceded David, Jephthah preceded Samson, and Barak uh, preceded Gideon. It's interesting. So you're, we're definitely in kind of a, a general summary mode here. All right. Now, Gideon was the individual who um, was uh, threshing wheat uh, during the time of the Midianites, when the Midianites were, were uh, just ravaging the nation of Israel and coming and plundering them from everything because Israel had sinned. And he's trying to thresh in a wine press, which is not very good because you don't get good crosswinds. But he's trying to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord comes and stirs him up to, uh, to battle against the Midianites. And he ends up doing so in a remarkable way with just 300 guys that lap water like a dog. I mean, he's not any kind of massive, amazing person. And he felt himself to be a weak man of the, the smallest of his father's clan and the tribe is insignificant in Israel and all that. And God used him. So that's Gideon. And uh, he did it without a sword in his hand. His soldiers, they just stood there and, and shouted and broke a, a clay jar and a torch came and they blew a trumpet and that was it. And the, the enemy just turned on themselves and slaughtered themselves. Uh, earlier than him, though, is Barak, who really does not give a good account of himself. This is during the time of Deborah, when Deborah was judging Israel. She's the only um, godly or positive female leader of men in the entire Bible. There's no other example. And so she's there in the book of Judges, and you know she was judging Israel at the time. And, and so Barak was a military leader who seems to lack courage um, and needs Deborah to come with him and maybe hold his hand a little bit. And Deborah ends up saying that if that happens, then the glory for the victory will go to a woman. And it turns out she doesn't even mean herself. She means uh, Jael, I think, who, who drove a tent peg down through uh, the enemy's temple and destroyed him. So that's Barak. Samson, a very flawed character. Um, he's very powerful when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he's, he's a one-man wrecking crew, kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, you think about what kind of endurance. These, all, these are all warriors coming at him. I'll tell you, that'll make a great Thor movie. Uh, I'm telling you, they, he's, he's amazing. 
Um, he's also strange. There's just strange elements to Samson. Like one of the strangest, the strangest stories in the entire Bible is a story of how he tears apart this lion and a couple of days later sees the carcass and sees a swarm of bees and the bees make honey in the carcass and he scoops it, he scrapes it out of the carcass with his hands and eats it and then gives it to his parents. It's just a weird story. Anyway. My favorite part of that story is it says, he tears a lion as one would tear a young goat. Yeah, just like you and I. When was the last time you teared a young goat? Just on Saturday. Can, can I can I be honest with you? Daphne and I, my daughter and I, have been going into the young goat passages. You remember the older brother in the parable of the, of the prodigal son? You never gave me so much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I just laugh over the young goat passages. So there's, there's a number of them. But anyway, here's Samson. And obviously he had a weakness for women. He doesn't seem to be a moral man when it comes to, to women. He, he's with a prostitute and all that. So a, a flawed character. So he's not a perfect man, but still displayed faith, uh, remarkable faith. Um, and then there's Jephthah, who was the son of a prostitute. Uh, he was an outcast. He was rejected by his father's clan, but apparently was a warrior who gathered a bunch of scoundrels around him. And the scoundrels were good fighters, and uh, they, they're called worthless men. Um, and he gathers around, and, and they turn to him for help. Uh, and he ends up ruling over Israel, but he makes a, a foolish, a rash vow, saying, whatever crosses the threshold of my house, I will offer as a, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And I don't know what he could have had in mind, the family dog, you know, I don't know. Probably the young goat. Yeah, the young goat, maybe (laughs) that came in and out of his house, but it turned out to be his daughter. Very strange story. And you're just scratching your head on that one. There's just some difficult moments. And then, of course, uh, David and Samuel are famous. Samuel, the the last of the judges, um, and a godly man whose mother was, you know, barren, and, and she prayed, and God heard her prayer and gave her this little boy Samuel, who uh, who then, in a very godly way, led Israel and was a judge and anointed the first king, King uh, Saul, and then he also anointed David. And then there's David, one of the, the great heroes of the Bible. You don't have to wonder about him. But what the author is saying, these six individuals all were heroes of the faith. Do you find it interesting that David receives just a small mention here, given how much of Scripture is devoted to his life and and kingship? It is interesting, isn't it? I think his deeds are mentioned in the list that follows. You know, he conquered kingdoms and and trampled enemies uh, were powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. David did all of those things. He was a mighty warrior. I think it's the kind of thing where these Jewish uh, Christians would have known David's story very well. So it's almost like very strong um, statement through understatement. He uses understatement here. Then you got the listing of the prophets as well. Uh, They were just generally mentioned as men of faith. And so their examples are, are, are there. I want to ask you about the first three words of verse 33, where it says, who through faith. So all these things they did, they did through faith. Please reiterate for us just again how faith operates in every aspect of life. And really nothing we do, whether going out to battle against a foreign king or you know, putting sin to death in the prayer closet or standing against persecution in the city, how all these things need to be done through faith. It's a powerful, powerful question. Let's keep in mind what faith is at the beginning of the chapter. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. And so let's take the first half, assurance of things hoped for. So we're in the section here where you have a, uh, you know, a, a positive outcome. Look at Gideon, for example. 
the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. There's no indication he's a mighty warrior, but God uh, says this to him. And he says, go in the strength you have and defeat the Midianites. And then he builds him up through various signs, the fleece, both directions with the fleece, it's dry and, and then it's wet or vice versa. And then, and then if you're still afraid, go down and listen and you'll hear something that'll give you strength and courage. And there's this dream and, about a barley loaf, for goodness sake, that rolls into the camp and destroys him. And this, this can be none other than Gideon. And it's like, all right, we're in. And so what happens then after all of these things have happened, Gideon's ready to fight. He's confident. Now, apart from that, you can't do anything. Without, without that sense of assurance of things hoped for, uh, confidence that this thing will, will turn out well, you won't do anything. You'll stay hiding from the Midianites in a cave somewhere. Um, so Gideon's just an example. Uh, all of these were great men of action, men of activity that roused up and did things for God. And so the author is calling on these Hebrew Christians to be the same. Rise up and act. Be courageous. Go visit the, the Christians in prison and bring them food. And don't be afraid whether you get arrested or tortured. Be a, a man, a woman of action. So I think that's what it is. It's through faith, they have an internal sense of confidence, uh, of boldness even, that good outcomes will come if they will just stand firm and move out and trust in God. Look what can happen. So I think that's where we get the expression, by faith, they did all these things. Hmm. Do you want to give any indication of some of the stories and the accounts that the author will be speaking of with the you know conquering kingdoms, force justice, stop the mouth of lions? Okay. Well, all right. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. I, I don't think we'll, we'll just stick here. We could easily go back to the time of Joshua. Those were all seven nations stronger than the Israelites. They're all conquered kingdoms by faith. They trusted God by, uh, to cross the Jordan River and not worry about the Anakites with the walls going up to the skies. By faith, they took over the promised land. But we also see that they had to continue fighting in the era of judges. The whole land wasn't conquered yet. And so they had to defeat uh, the, you know, the, the other uh, Gentile enemies that were still there, especially the Philistines. So you can see David was a, a mighty warrior um, who by faith uh, destroyed the Philistines. Samson certainly did that and uh, in this way uh, conquered kingdoms. Uh, also, Jerusalem was a Jebusite city, and David, by faith, was able to conquer that. And so you see this in, in all of these military leaders. They're able to do great things. Uh, these were Gentile nations, foreign armies that would invade, like the Midianites. They're all Gentiles would come in, and they had to be conquered. And so by faith, he did that. And then... Um, what is it, uh, administer justice or, or enforce justice? I have enforced justice. Enforce justice. Maybe it's that sense of, of a sense of right and wrong that judges uh, ruled. I mean, you, you have some bad stories in the book of Judges. One of the strangest books in the Bible. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But from time to time, there would be these islands of justice where you'd have godly leaders. Clearly, uh, Samuel was a godly judge and he enforced justice. Uh, you remember the story where Samuel sends King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, and he doesn't do the whole job, and, and he leaves the king alive, Agag. And it was, it was Samuel who, by faith, ran him through with a sword. He was an enemy of the Lord and needed to be executed. And so that's enforcing justice. And see, these are the kind of things that have to be established, and, he, and it's done by faith. And uh, also received what was promised. Things have been promised, promised land, etc. Without faith, they're not going to inherit that. So there are all these amazing promises that have been made. And so going beyond that, shut the mouths of lions and quench the fury of the flame. 
hard to hear that without hearing the book of Daniel. I don't know, uh, though Daniel's not mentioned, and we're rummaging around in the early part of the history, you know, you got the judges and, and then the early kings, David, etc. I, th- I think it's hard for me to hear the story without thinking about, about uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So by faith, think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how confident they were with Nebuchadnezzar, the great tyrant. They were unafraid, stood firm. And again, how much of an inspiration that would be to the Jewish Christians that were afraid of persecution by the Romans. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced a terrifying tyrant who was the most powerful man on earth, faced him unafraid. Said, O king, we don't need to give you an answer in this matter. Our God, the one we serve, is able to deliver us from the fury of the flames. And even if he does not, we want you to know we're not going to bow down to your idol. And then Daniel wasn't willing to give up on his quiet time. Continued to pray three times a day. Even though there had been a, a, a foolish law made and enforced during the time of the Medes and the Persians, uh, a law saying that if anyone prayed to anyone but you, O king, uh, that he would be uh, thrown in the, in the lion's den. And, and I, I have to imagine that's one of, the, one of the most remarkable stories ever. Here are these powerful, ravenous lions who destroyed Daniel's false accusers immediately ripped them limb from limb and their families. They never even made it to the floor of the den, but they spent all night in close proximity with Daniel, never touched him. And Daniel celebrated saying, my God sent his angels, shut the mouths of the lions. And so by faith, because Daniel was a man of faith, that's why. And the king, Darius, uh, celebrated it, saying that God has delivered you because you are faithful to him. Shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of the flames. You know, that's such a beautiful picture with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where the angel of the Lord joined them. There was a fourth man looking like one uh, who is a son of the gods. And there's that sense, when you pass through the fire, I'll be with you. And so the Lord was with them by faith. And so if you're going through persecution, Hebrew Christians, if you're going through persecution, 21st century American Christians, God will be with you by faith. You trust in him and you can walk through the flames. Shut the mouths of the lions metaphorically. Satan's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Powerfully, we can stand firm against our enemies whose weakness, it says, was, uh, it says, sorry, escaped the edge of the sword. Later, it says they, uh, they became powerful in battle. Maybe that's the same kind of time where you are fighting and your enemy is about to run you through and somehow you survive. Psalm 18, David talks about how he trampled down his enemies under his feet into the mire, into the muck. And they became like thorns in a, in a bonfire. And he just destroys them because he called out on God and cried out to him by faith. And so he escaped the edge of a sword and he won military battles. I think one of my favorite military battles is when Joab and his brother, I think it's Joab and Abishai, go out and they're vastly outnumbered. And they just say, we'll split up. You go that way, I'll go this way. And if you need help, I'll help you. If I need help, you'll help me. And, <laughs> and we'll see what God does. If, if it's God's will, we'll win. Yeah, and they go yeah, out and they get a smashing victory. Yeah, I mean, just think about the most famous military story in the Old Testament, David and Goliath. It was not David filled with faith as he took those five smooth stones and went out to meet Hold the me. He tells he's him he's going to kill him. He's gonna, I'm going to win this battle because God's on my side. So there's this incredible, buoyant confidence. I think I really think that's what the author's getting at. There's a buoyant hope-filled confidence that comes over you when you're filled with faith. You're filled with faith and know that the Lord is on your side. God is on your side, yeah. absolutely. That's what's so cool about the Old Testament battle narratives is that they knew and God had promised to be on their side and they saw just great salvation. It's awesome. And in verse 35, he says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Mm-hmm. 
He must be talking of Elisha. Yeah. Maybe even Mary and Martha. You Maybe think? so, but you know, it's again. It seems like we're going through the uh, the Old Testament stories here. So I think you're right about Elisha and the Shunammites' son, who, as the story went, she was barren, and and God, by grace through the intercession of Elisha, gave her the gift of a child. But then, in the course of time, he had some kind of a, a brain tumor or some brain fever, and he was in intense pain and died. And then God used Elisha to raise him from the dead. And it's it's amazing, and so but the focus here is not on Elisha's faith, but on her faith. She she trusted by her, by faith, by trusting in the man. She sent for the man of God. She sent for him, and she's not gonna. She didn't want a staff laid across the child's face. No, she wants him, and uh, she's in deep distress, but trusts that God can do something. And so it's a little bit like you mentioned with Martha and Mary, where you know I know that even now God will grant you whatever you ask. So they're trusting God even for the resurrection of the dead. There's no more powerful enemy than death. Death is the final enemy. And so they uh, stood firm and they trusted God. But it's interesting in, in verse 35, you have a little bit of a continental divide. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah tell us. About, yeah, well, it, it, it takes a huge turn and yeah. then we get to suffering. So let me, let me read, read some of the rest of these verses and uh, then I want you to talk about them. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. So the author brings in this deep suffering that these faithful saints experienced. Uh, first, he says, you know, some were tortured. Yeah. What do you get out of this phrase, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life? Yeah, it's interesting translation. What, what translation is that? That's ESV? the ESV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, translation I'm reading here, it says, gain a better resurrection. So that's that would be something we'd have to look at, the idea there. I just think it's so powerful. I know the verses aren't um, inspired, you know, the verse numbers. But in verse 35, you get what I've called the continental divide. You're going all in one direction, all success. Success, success, success. All this success, military success, triumph, victory, songs of, songs of victory, and, and all of this joy. And then it turns around and says others, and then it all becomes difficult. And so that's where we get, we talked about at the beginning, the sense that faith will strengthen you no matter what the earthly outcome. And so he's preparing these Hebrew Christians that he's not ne- they're not necessarily going to be uh, set free. They might actually spend the rest of their lives in jail. They might actually be executed. They might be tortured. And others have gone before them in that, in that courageous trail of blood and were willing by faith to stand firm. So let's look at the first thing that was said. Others were tortured and refused to be released. They, they wouldn't be set free. So they had the option to be set seems free. That it way. seems that way. seems yeah. that way. Now, there's, there's a um, uh, you know, story, there's an example in church history of John Bunyan, who was not directly tortured, but he was incarcerated. And he said that his separation from his wife and his blind daughter, Mary, and you know his family was as the plucking of his flesh from his bones because he knew how much they depended on him and how much they were suffering and here's the hardest part of all he could have been set free at any time all he had to do was swear to never preach again he was not a licensed preacher it was the very end of religious persecution in england and so he was there in the bedford jail and could have been set free at any time and he refused it because he knew he was called to preach, and he could not swear to not preach. So it reminds me of even in Pilgrim's... Isn't that incredible? In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Hopeful were in Doubting Castle, and um, 
um, Christian found a key in his breast pocket, which he had the whole time. And he, and he put it in the lock and it opened and swung up and he got out. And, and I wonder if he thought about that as he was writing from the prison that he could have gotten out of any time, different circumstances, but he had the ability to be set free. So I don't know biblically what story these individuals are, are representing here, but they chose to be faithful to Christ. So you could imagine in the Roman persecution era, all you have to do is burn a pinch of incense to Caesar will set you free. Just do that. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to get the mark of the beast. I'm not going to bow down to Caesar. I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord. Um, I'll be willing to be tortured and even killed. Jesus is Lord. And I think in their mind, it's a better resurrection. Uh, Not that they ever would be set free in this life, but that they would be raised to the resurrection of the righteous and receive the rewards that would come from those that suffered for Christ. I think that's what's going on here. Yeah. Can you talk about the mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment? I know you've spoken about this before in in your pulpit ministry, just how... Um, often, especially in the West, we're not persecuted. None of us are getting sawn in two. But even mocking can sting at times. Sure. And so these, these uh, Christians are encouraged to look at other believers who have suffered mocking and they've suffered it well. Yeah, I mean, let's not minimize it. Jesus didn't. He said, bless you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here it mentions mocking or jeers. And so that's, uh, it can be bitter to be, to be laughed to scorn. You're a fool. Um, and, and to be able to stand firm by, by faith, they, they set their face like flint. They wouldn't yield. They said, you know, God cannot be mocked and really neither can his servants. So if I'm faithful to Christ, this will not hurt. And then it, it speaks about flogging. You think about Paul and Silas were flogged in Philippi, though they had done nothing wrong. And uh, we don't know that that's the author, what the author has in mind here. If there's some Old Testament individuals that were flogged, I don't know. But uh, they, were, they were tortured. And so I think he's writing at this point very much thinking about his audience. He's very much thinking about how people they knew had been incarcerated and even, even put to death perhaps. They themselves had not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood, but they might. And so just having this uploaded, that they face these extreme circumstances by faith and that they will be rewarded. Um, they were chained and put in prison um, and they went through these suffering. And then it, it, it talks about being stoned. Um, you know, I think, yeah, go ahead. Wasn't Naboth stoned? Maybe so. He was a righteous man. man. <laughs> yeah, okay, possibly so. I mean, I think for us, we definitely have examples of stoning in the New Testament. Paul was stoned and left for dead. I think God might have even raised him from the dead. Stephen was stoned and executed. So he actually died by faith. He died in faith believing, not having received the things promised. So Stephen's a clear example of somebody who died in faith, not receiving deliverance. He died. He died a martyr's death. And so he was stoned. You think about others, it says they were you know, sawn in two. Uh, the, traditionally, uh, as far as we know, that was Isaiah. He was put in a log by one of the wicked kings of, of Israel. He was put in a log and sawn alive. I mean, you think about how long you're alive while you have received mortal wounds and the sawing isn't finished yet. What a horrible way to die and no way to get out. I mean, you're, you're totally pinned in by the log and then sawn in two. So that's a traditional story. It's not in the Bible, but about what happened to Isaiah. So remarkable. The author talks about their clothing. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Why does he bring up their clothing? And what does this show us about the kind of life they lived in relation to the world? 
Well, I think you're looking directly at poverty here. I mean, because of their faith-filled stance, because of their commitment or their calling, they turned their back on wealth, just like Moses did. Turned his back on all the, all the riches of Egypt. And so again, I think the author of the Hebrews is thinking about his audience and how they were willing to give up uh, their possessions, confiscation of their property. So anything of value taken from them by, by the Romans, by the courts. Or you could think about Jewish Christians who were kicked out of the synagogue and nothing else happened to them. But that meant that they could not ply their trade. They couldn't make pottery that the Jews would buy. They couldn't make furniture uh, that any of the Jews would buy. They were, were destitute as a result. So Jewish Christians who, because of their faith in Christ, uh, could not make a living any longer. This is why Paul uh, raised money among the Gentile believers, saying that you owe it to the Jews to support them financially. They've blessed you spiritually. You owe it to them to support them financially. And so in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he talks about the offering that was made in Romans 15 also for the Jews, the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So the idea here is one of destitution. Or you could look at calling. Uh, John the Baptist, you don't think of him as rich or poor. He was poor. He just I think the idea of making money meant literally nothing to him. He was eating locusts and wild honey, and he wore a wild kind of garment, a camel hair with a belt around of leather around his waist. He was not in it for the comfortable clothing, and Jesus himself said that. What did you go out into the desert to see? Did you go see somebody dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. You went out to see a prophet. And so here's a man who was an otherworldly character. He did not care for the things of this world. Food meant nothing to him except to stay alive. Clothing meant nothing to him except to cover his nakedness and to give him, you know, a little bit of relief from the, from the elements. Other than that, he was there to do the will of God. Yeah. And as you're saying this, I'm reminded of the verse where Paul says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This idea of just an alien, I don't belong here. Yeah, and very few of us, I think, attain to that level of detachment. It's a goal. It's like perfection. So we have this idea of persecution and of poverty uh, because of Christ set out for us. We must be honest about our American evangelical setting. Very few of us are going to live like this. And I think what we have to do is say, you know, there are men and women that have lived like this. There are some that are alive today that are living like this. We are not among them. Now, we need to be willing to do that, not forsake our faith in Christ. Some of us may actually go over and live with them and minister in Africa, in the Horn of Africa, let's say, in Somalia or the Sudan, or you could imagine in other countries. We could imagine some Christians going to do ministry, uh, wouldn't be Westerners, but do ministry in North Korea. You could imagine some Chinese that are genuinely believers in Christ, but they have been positioned in North Korea. We don't know. But they're there and they're willing to face incarceration and suffering and death. We Americans, we don't face these levels of suffering. But the point is that men and women by faith were willing to be, as the author says, those of whom the world was not worthy. The world didn't deserve them. Yeah. And this is our spiritual family. These are all our, our heritage, right? Even if we don't go through these sufferings, these are our, our people, yeah. right? It, it's amazing. We live in a royal heritage. And I've thought about this often as I write this book on heaven, thinking about, you know... I have a clear and clearer sense of probably where I fit in the pecking order because of the level of sacrifice and suffering that others have done and what I see in my life. 
I'm, I'm just going to be glad to be able to carry their shoes, you know, in heaven. They, these are great men and women, and they're going to be so far ahead of me in honor. I'm just going to be glad to be in heaven, and I'll be so delivered from myself, I will be able to honor them as they deserve to be honored. These are men and women of whom the world was not worthy, and that's remarkable. It does make me want to live more and more of an otherworldly life, though. Yeah. He says in verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And that's the same theme he was talking about with Abraham earlier, how Abraham didn't get the land yet. Um, but verse 40 is just shocking to me. He says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Wow. Please unpack that for us and, and tell us what he's talking about there. Yeah. Well, I think he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. I think he's talking about glorification, the finish line of salvation. Uh, and what is it? What is the finish line of salvation? It's when all of the redeemed, all of the elect, chosen before the foundation of the world, are in glorious resurrection bodies in a resurrected world called the new heavens and new earth with the capital city, the new Jerusalem. That's when it's all done. And no one's there yet. No one. Jesus is in a resurrection body. But he's not the redeemed. He's the redeemer. Okay, So the redeemed, none of them are done being saved. Some of them are done sinning. They're absent from the body present with the Lord. They're spirits of righteous men made perfect. We can talk about that in the next chapter. But they don't have resurrection bodies yet. So only together with us, we all get our resurrection bodies at the same time. In a flash, in the twinkling of the, of the eye at the last trumpet. For the dead in Christ will rise and we will be clothed. Uh, with radiant, glorious resurrection bodies. So this verse is telling us it all happens at the same time. Only together with us would they be made perfect. And the us is the elect. The rest so of the, the redeemed, rest of the right. elect. And so that's missions and evangelism. We're going out to find the elect who have not yet been, been redeemed and bring them over from death to life. But even then, they won't receive it either. Everybody gets it at the second coming of Christ. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about, the rapture. The dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That, I believe, is the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, and the resurrection from the dead. Yeah, that's an incredible thought that the disembodied saints in heaven are waiting for the rest of the redeemed, the rest of the elect to come to faith. And then we'll all be made perfect together. I remember when you preached on that, and that was just very surprising to me because I think we have this idea that, oh, once someone goes to heaven, then they receive their inheritance, then they're made perfect. But no, they're waiting. Yeah, and I think we need to have a different translation of the word perfect. They are morally perfect, right. but they're not complete. Not glorified. Yeah, I think the word perfect, um, the, the teleos um, in, the, in the Greek, has a sense of completion, so there's no stain or spot in them. They are pure as light, but they're not done yet. They're not finished because they don't have bodies. So only together us with us would they finish, would they be made finished, and that is with resurrection bodies. Yeah. For the last question here, I want to ask you um, about really the first verse of the next chapter because I think it gives the application for this entire section. Um, how can we apply knowledge of these heroes of faith who have gone before us, looking to both people in Hebrews chapter 11, reading missionary biographies, reading of those saints who have gone before us. How can we imitate their faith and apply this knowledge to live fruitful spiritual lives? Well, I think what we need to realize is that faith is a gift of God. 
It, it says it very plainly in, in Ephesians 2. Uh, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. All of these great men and women of God were given the gift of faith. And we belong to the same family, just like you said a moment ago. We're part of the same heritage. We're part of the same royal lineage. And so the inspiration, this what the author is going to call this great cloud of witnesses, is around us. Um, and I, I don't know so much as we're looking at that they're watching us like they're watching a movie, maybe. Um, but I think more importantly is their, their uh, example has been uploaded for us by the author to Hebrews mentioning them. So our minds are filled with these examples. Uh, but if you want to say they are actively watching us, fine. But the fact is their example is there in front of us having been mentioned. And we are thus inspired to seek from God the giver of every good gift, to seek from God an increase in our faith, just as the disciples said, oh Lord, increase our faith, so that we also could do great works for the glory of God. And let me say one more thing. I believe that the greatest, most sacrificial, most glorious, most courageous works that in the end will ever have been done for the name of Christ have yet to be done. I really think that. I think the end of the world will be so horrible and the reign of the Antichrist so terrible, and his power so great and so satanic, that the martyrs who have not yet been martyred, that are mentioned with the fifth seal, that have not yet suffered and died, who refuse to receive the mark of the beast, and so are slaughtered as a result, a lot of those great stories have yet to be written. And would, it wouldn't surprise me at all that Hebrews 11 would stand as a powerful inducement to that final generation of martyrs to live as men and women of faith for the glory of God. That's a, it's a beautiful thought. It's a, it's a terrifying thought, but it's also a beautiful thought that the, the, the story is not yet finished. Yeah. It's, there's stories yet to be written. Many, many stories. I mean, think about the world population and how many, how many Christians there will be um, at the end of the world. Um, and you could say, well, you know, what about the pre-trib rapture and all that? And so whatever you believe about that, we still believe, even those that believe in a pre-trib rapture believe in tribulation saints. And they'll be big in number, lots of them. And so, again, the, the, stand, the assertion stands. These martyr stories, most of them perhaps even, have yet to be written. Wow. Well, thank you, Andy. That was episode 34 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And the title is, Laying Aside Weights and Sins, Looking to Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.